Good afternoon, everybody, from Wembley Stadium. My name's Nick DiMarco Casey. I'm a sports lawyer with special expertise in matters relating to football, and I'll be moderating this agents panel uh, this afternoon. This panel session is being recorded for the Blackstone Chambers Sports Law blog, which I'm sure you all listen to, uh, because there are um, many thousands, I'm sure, of our listeners who are unable to be here today, uh, who are going to be very interested in what this exceptional panel discusses this afternoon. So I must start by thanking the European Football Agents Association, the University Campus of Football Business and the Global Institute of Sport for collaborating to put together this fantastic event today. Um, we've uh, had a lot of very interesting discussion earlier about the framework in general relating to agents regulation. And uh, despite being a lawyer myself, what I would like our panel to uh, focus on now is the practical impact of uh, the landscape we are about to enter into, how it's actually going to affect everybody on the ground. Uh, and so we're very fortunate to have a highly experienced, diverse and international agents panel to discuss that. Kelly Skeggs is the COO and General Counsel of Omnisports, which is one of the leading uh, independent football agencies in the UK. Kelly's worked in professional football for over a decade, both club and player side. She's been involved in hundreds of domestic and international player transfers. And she's also a former elite athlete herself and a non-executive director of NGB Table Tennis England. Fari Ekvet is the COO and Global Football and Business at Wasserman, which is, I'm sure you all know, one of the largest sports agency companies in the world. He's also a lawyer, and he's been instrumental in the recent FA Rule K arbitration challenge to the FIFA regulations in England, which means, by the way, he can't speak about that because that arbitration, like so many others, is confidential. Bruno Satin is a board member of EFA. He's also the vice president of the French Union of Agents, and he's president of BNS Partners. He's one of the leading and most experienced international football agents, starting as an agent back in 1988. And he was for 15 years one of the world's largest sport and entertainment agencies at IMG, uh, where he was head of football there between 2005 and 2013. I think because of flights, Bruno will have to leave at four o'clock. He's not being rude. We'll carry on without him. And we're very grateful for him being here uh, today. Raffaele uh, Rigitano is the vice president of the Italian Association of Agency, AIACS. And he is also both a lawyer and a football agent. And Jean Van Ball from JB Sports to Business is a founding member and current board member of Pro Agent in Holland. He's a former lawyer and professional footballer himself. He was part of one of the first global football management companies, Proactive Sports in the UK. And the main countries that he is involved in, in terms of football activity, is Germany, Holland, Paraguay, Ecuador, Japan, Australia, and the USA. So as I say, we have a very experienced and international panel. I have a number of questions for them, but I also am sure you do. And I'm going to try and make sure we have 
five or six minutes at the end to have your questions. So if you have any, please get them ready, make them nice and short and brief, and we'll try and get them all in. So um, many of the speakers on the earlier panels today have discussed the various legal challenges that are going on throughout Europe to FIFA's new agent regulations and the 3% cap in particular. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to repeat the legal analysis we've had before, but just this. What do you think the outcome is going to be? Are we going to be living under the cap in the future or not? Let me start with you, Jan. Well, of course, I wouldn't have sitting here if I didn't believe that we've got the law on our side, which I strongly believe. So I believe in the long run, I think the 3% will be gone and the dual representation situation will remain the same situation as it is now. But saying this also, I had a couple of sleepless nights over the couple of last months as well. And today, again, we discussed uh, what happened uh, in, in the world in general. And if I look back then to the situation we've had ourselves in Holland, well, I, I told a little bit about it. And we, we lost the case in the sense that we never got to the merits of it. The good thing was, there was a little bit of surprise for me as well when the roller coaster started again, that the Dutch FA finally, uh, although we thought they wouldn't do it, they implemented without the dual representation or restriction on the dual representation in our favor and without the caps that made it all very great for us. Then, of course, we had situations in Belgium where a case was lost. Then, of course, the Spanish saved our ass. But in the meantime, and there we go back to the roller coaster again, we've got the situation in which also CAS and um, finally also the European Commission came with their uh, remarks the, the other day and then unfortunately and then I have to think of Rob Jans as well who said to me a couple of months ago Jan you know where you're going up against because FIFA is FIFA and to be very honest I think the public relation machine of FIFA is very very strong so coming up with these things the funny thing was these things came straight out as well so telling everybody that they were going to win of course again Spain came so the thing is what we have now is on the one hand we have law and we say in Dutch always it's good to be right but to to have the rights is a completely different thing. And I think politics are getting more and more important as we've seen over the last couple of years. I'm still very confident we get it done, but we know also who, we, uh, who we're fighting against. Fari, what's your perspective? Hi, everyone. Thank you very much for inviting me back. This is my second time as a panelist here. I clearly, clearly wasn't controversial enough the first time, so I'll try and be more controversial this time. Um, the outcome. So obviously, look, from a UK perspective, um, I was one of the, the, the claimant companies that, that brought the case. I, unfortunately, I can't talk about any of the case today, as, as we've discovered. But obviously, when we went to uh, the, the law firm that acted for us, um, they were confident um, and we remain confident uh, of, of our chance in the UK. We are really, really grateful to see so many different European actions commence. And we as a company and many of the people in the room today have been part of the, the, the various different European actions. These are good actions. These are good actions with good prospects of success. And we're very fortunate to already have seen so many judges across Europe actually look at this and think, hang on a minute, these guys have got a point. For me, common sense should prevail. Common sense should mean that th this cap should not exist. Why should we have a situation where agents are capped and really no one else in the football pyramid is capped? We are very lucky to see courageous judges look at these issues, dissect these issues and say, hang on a minute, this is not right here. We need to pause, we need to implement an injunction, we need to have proper review of the ECJ, for the ECJ to dissect these issues and then make a judgment. And for me, this is a really positive step. 
And I, I, I really believe in the justice system and I really believe that we will be victorious at the end of this. I agree with everything you've just said there, Jan. I think there is a bit of a PR machine going on on the side. We know FIFA are good at PR. So I would encourage everyone to, to take PR with a pinch of salt and really look at the facts. There has been a, a few leaked articles in the press. Well, let's really dissect those articles and let's really look at the actual key sources of information. Is it as they've been reported or actually is it something slightly different? So I would encourage a little bit of caution with all of that as well. Thank, thank you, Fari. Now, we're currently in a period of great chaos and uncertainty. One example of this that I read lots about on social media was the FIFA agents exams. And I'm sure there's many others. Raffaella, what, what was your experience about that? Yes, um, I'm not um, agree about the difficulty of this uh, exam. Uh, because I think uh, when I have um, made the exam in, um, in 2002, uh, the, the exam was the, the same maybe. Now, uh, is a, for me, is a, it's, it's need uh, uh, to, to, to check the, the practical uh, experience for the, the the candidate to the the, the exam and uh, now the exam of the of the agent is uh, um, I, I don't know uh, the, the the number but only test uh, for for question uh, for me it's need uh, maybe to have uh, an oral exam uh, to, to 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 know to to check if the the candidate is uh, no, no, the, the activity of an agent uh, is particular activity. In my in my federation in Italy, uh, the people that would um, be, um, become the the the, the agent um, uh, must pass the have, have, have has passed two exams. The first at uh, uh, federation at uh, at CONI at CONI and the Committee Olympic, uh, Italian Committee Olympic. In uh, the first session in, uh, in test, at the second in oral um, exam. Uh, if uh, if uh, he passed this uh, uh, exam after another exam in, uh, in FIGC, in the Italian Federation. And uh, when you uh, become an agent uh, after she did these uh, two uh, exams you can work in italy only in italy if you want work in the world it's need to make another exam the, the fifa exam so i think uh, in uh, in in this uh, in this time uh, the, the the exam of, of fifa is is, uh, is 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 good maybe um, maybe is uh, it's, it's need to have the 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 in the commission of uh, uh, of exam um, uh, many many agent. I think I think Raffaella, one of the things we were talking about here though was there was a, apparently a complete chaos with the organisation of the exam. Kelly, are you able to talk about that? I haven't taken the exam, but I can talk to about it with um, the experiences of some of my agents. So I don't think. Um, there, there's anyone in the room that would necessarily disagree with the benefits in for the industry of an increased standard and professionalism for, for everybody concerned. So for me, we're very much in favour of the exam and increasing those, those standards and the objectives that you discussed earlier 
um, in terms of um, protecting players and, and improving the standards within the industry are, are obviously met by, by an exam. The first exam took place in London and that seemed to go fairly smoothly and without issue. The second exam, and, and obviously we're looking at a landscape whereby agents only have two opportunities before the regulations were supposed to be implemented in order to actually pass that exam. So of the 50%, so one, one of the exams um, in Birmingham was uh, took place and the Wi-Fi was not fit for purpose. And the, as you say, was a complete farce. So you've got people starting late, you've got the platform that was freezing, you've got people that had to start um, incrementally, so other people were finishing 20 minutes, half an hour before the next person. And after the next person, you had the invigilators speaking over the top of people that were trying to take the exam. Some people only got to maybe question 14, 15 because of the time that they'd spent wasted on waiting for their platform to reload. So um, I'm not sure where the decision was taken uh, to allow people to then take the exam from home. So when we talk about the objectives of the regulations in terms of trying to increase professionalism standards within the game, what you're then looking at is uh, exams that are then not fit for purpose. So you, you have to question the integrity of that entire process and why the FA weren't able to manage that process effectively. So um, if you failed the exam on that attempt, so if you passed that, that was perfectly fine. If you failed that attempt, you were then given another opportunity to take the test from home. So you took it from a remote location that could be anywhere of your choosing. There were set times and dates given across the board, but the problems that that gives to the people then pass that exam um, is anybody's guess. Thank you, Kelly. There's usually some brave soul from the FA like David Newton who comes along to these events. I'm not sure if if there is anyone at the back from the FA there and if there is, they're brave enough to raise their hands because maybe in the question and answers, they might be able to tell us how, how the FA intends to deal with some of these issues. But on the broader legal um, uh, landscape chaos, if you like, as discussed earlier today, we had the intervention of the German courts, which means the regulations are suspended for operation in Germany. Uh, we've had the Rule K arbitration in England that Fari and others were involved in, which means at least until I think it's the end of November, they've promised the decision. The FA is not bringing in the regulations in England. And of course, what they will bring in will depend on the outcome of that, presumably. And then just on Monday of this week, we had the uh, intervention of the Spanish courts and the injunction there against the regulations coming into force in Spain. What does that actually mean? Uh, uh, for example, in the winter transfer window coming up, if you've got a player or an agent who is involved in an international transaction and, for example, maybe on loan in Spain or in Germany, what, what will it mean? Fari, starting with you. I think it means chaos, to be honest with you. I also think it means that the lawyers are rubbing their hands because uh, they'll be busy this uh, this January. Um, but practically speaking, it's really difficult to work it out. I think you've, you've got to look at the judgments, you've got to interpret them. And let's not forget, the judgments aren't necessarily made with the minutia of agent deals happening in January. Cross-jurisdictional transfers can be complicated. Are they a home-based agent based in, in England? Are, are they based abroad? Where is the player based? When it's international, how does that exactly sit? 
are the entities based abroad where the agent is registered. There are so many complicating factors in all of these things, especially when you have something that, as we don't really like, a non-uniform system, it becomes increasingly complicated. So I think it really is, and there'll, there'll probably be some case studies where things go wrong. And sometimes that, that in, is inevitable in these situations. So we're going to have to really analyze those situations. We as a company have to look very carefully into those dealings in those various territories to make sure we follow the letter of the law. And, it, and really what we've found so far, sometimes the local federations don't know the answers as well. So we find ourselves in this situation, well, we've got no one to ask. So uh, sometimes it's just trial and error a little bit. And, and, and I really hope that you know, we can find a way through this minefield of activity potentially in January. Some of us lawyers in the room are going to be busy on this. Bruno, what's your, as an international agent dealing with these, what's your perspective on what's going to happen? Yeah, I mean, of course, I mean, some some agents could be tempted to to deal uh, exclusively in Germany, or, or or at least to make business with a German agent. So, uh, I mean, they, they will have a lot of uh, a lot of friends very soon. So, no, but more more seriously. Uh, I mean, of course, as Fari mentioned, it's a, it's a total chaos, and I'm, I keep receiving calls about colleagues who want to know what's going on, what is happening here and there, and um, it's difficult to answer. So, uh, so obviously, we we cross our fingers, uh, waiting for the decision in England, and and hopefully, uh, just after that, uh, it will be a bit more clear. But there's another aspect who haven't been mentioned so far in this room, and uh, I want to, 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 to talk about it, is, uh, you know, the overdues, you know, the, it's, it's more and more difficult to collect the money for the agents. So we have to, we, we have to fight in some countries, uh, you know, the clubs are not paying and the agents are the really last to be paid and to collect the money. And by the way, uh, we have business to run. And, and so uh, we have employees to pay. And so uh, and it's, it's something with getting worse and worse. So obviously in England or Germany, it's fine. But uh, there's a lot of uh, different countries where it's extremely difficult to collect the money. And it's not going to improve, especially if we get paid by players uh, in four times a year. You know, so it's impossible. It's not going to work. I mean, once again, FIFA people who thought about this regulation, when they, it's totally unrealistic because practically it's impossible. So all we will end up every day in court to collect our money. So, uh, I mean, let's think about it and, and, and hopefully uh, this uh, total FIFA regulation will be cancelled in a couple of months. And assuming it's not, assuming that we have to live even for some periods with the 3% cap, for example. How's that going to affect your businesses in terms of potential cuts, redundancies, moving around and so on? Um, Jan? As you did in the introduction, you see that I work a lot of internationally and our main course also is to go and attract and find young players at a young age. Uh, I don't have to explain to anybody in this room that that means in principle, if you do these things, there's a lot of costs coming out. So one of the things that FIFA always says, we take a lot of money out of the business. We spend a lot of money in going over the world. Of course, nowadays, computers help because there's a lot of more data. So you can find these players up front as well. 
But the problem, of course, we're facing, we still have a lot of uh, expenses. We get the players here and normally my business lives off the second deal. So we bring the players in here and in the past, in the dual representation situation without being TPO, if you had a seller in the future, you, you were able to become a part of that, which is a common business in Holland and in Germany where I'm based. So we were able to attract them in, just at least take all the costs we had then and then sell them on. Now, FIFA, first of all, the 3% or the 6% or whatever, because a lot of times I do it together with partners as well. So you speak about 3% for each. Well, that won't pay for the flight bills. That won't pay for our gas in the, in the, in the car. So there's going to be a very tough situation to be profitable or even break, break even. In that sense, also one of the clauses for FIFA, one of the objective is to say, listen, we uh, we want to get the level up. Well, if people like our company also stuck with this, that means that I think that group will be totally left alone and behind and nobody will look after them. That goes not only for top talents, because that could still be a market, but it goes definitely for the people that are maybe unemployed to playing the second or the third leagues lower, where there's no incentive anymore to go and do it. That's already what this morning we discussed, I think, the Portugal situation, if I'm correct, where already the unemployed number of players is growing and none of them was placed off market, which is normally the situation <coughs> possible because they were free agents, because simply it doesn't bring the money. So for us as a company, we just have to really reconsider if we're going to continue with that business model, which means that a lot of players, especially from the countries we mentioned, it's not Brazil, it's not Argentina, it's Ecuador. Okay, Caicedo and the ones that are doing a couple well. Paraguay, I did Santa Cruz in the past, but now we've got a couple of others coming through. For us, it's not making any sense anymore to make these trips if this sticks. And I don't see that will stick, but okay, that's what I said before. So in that sense, it will have a huge impact on our business. And of course, I know nearly everyone in the room will understand this, but um, perhaps some people who aren't involved in the business don't quite appreciate that because the way in which you as agents and your agencies earn money is on commission, you've got to invest an enormous amount of time, money, expenses on young players, presumably, who many of them may never turn out to do a big deal. And so how's it going to affect the players, this cap? We know, we, I worked my entire life with young players. You mentioned before where we came from, so we build up in Holland. So we worked with a lot of the Dutch national players in the past who came through. So the reputation we have is to be able to develop, make a plan and execute the plan with the players to go along. That doesn't mean we just take one from South America, drop him, which of course the image we have, but I can vouch for most of us in here, that's the way we don't work. We just bring them over, we make a plan, we execute the plan. If it's gone bad and for young players, especially you go the way up and it goes down. So it's not that we drop them somewhere on the, on, on the long run, it's just something we build and continue to build the career. Now that, if you don't in the position, if you have three or four of those, to make the next steps financially as well, because you don't make the money to even break even, that's going to hurt your company. And Kelly, I know you're particularly interested in, in the effect of these regulations on players. What, what, what are you concerned about? Yeah, so I think it was um, touched upon by Leon and um, Maheta in the previous exchange. Um, for me, it's very much, uh, it's okay, we sit here and we look from an agent's perspective at how it's impacting us directly, but also we need to look at who we're looking after and the people that are involved in this and their, and their careers and, and how short term they are and how important we are as an industry to their careers and how they move forward. Um, when we're looking at the impact of the regulation, so I've done um, a lot of work on, on the impact and scenario tested, for example, a, a 10 grand a week player to an 80 grand a week player and the difference it will make 
for that player when he's paying his agent out of his net salary. So I 100% agree with Maheta that it needs to be transparent and open. But as Leon says in, in this jurisdiction, it is very transparent and open and players do know and they are fully aware exactly what they're paying their agent. And, and we also have to do an annual return at the end of each year to make sure that they're, they're also fully aware again. So for us, it doesn't achieve that objective. But what it does mean is that the, the, the club is paying half of what they would otherwise have been paying because they would have paid the agent um, on the player's behalf. It also means that the player is now going to have to pay out of their net salary on a quarterly basis and it's going to come straight out of their wages directly to their agent. Um, and we, what we also haven't touched upon is the percentage where we're, we're talking about the selling club and as an agent of a selling club, you're able to take 10%, which is essentially a brokerage fee. And you're, as a player agent, especially with what Jan said, we're looking at when, when we're doing deals, we're often working in partnership with, with other agents. So I'll probably only be able to take 3% and Jan can only take 3%. So if you're brokering the deal, you're getting a 10% of the transfer fee, which is a significant sum. But if you're looking after the player and you're putting in all the work, exactly like Jan said, that's what we're all doing, um, we're only able to take 3%. So for me, the regulations do not protect players, they actually go the other way and, and they're pushing the industry to say, well, perhaps I shouldn't have a player signed to me, perhaps I should move into brokerage and do deals and take the 10% of the transfer fee. So I, I don't know where this goes and obviously we're waiting on um, lots of uh, answers, but if if that was implemented, I, I think that the players themselves would be significantly detrimented because um, the money is in brokerage, isn't in, in in the player side, and we should be looking after the player. So not only are they going to have to pay more, that the the agents are potentially going to move in a different direction, which then leaves them open, and clubs obviously have the power. Yes, and and, and just to just to um, understand that a bit more, I mean, one of the things I think we're saying is that if you're incentivized to get ten percent instead of three percent of a club selling a player's registration transfer fee, as they're described, uh, then you're going to try and push that transfer fee as high as possible because you're getting 10% of it, human nature. And the higher the transfer fee, the less money available for a player and the harder it is for a player to move from club to club. Bruno, I, you, you had your hand up on this point. Yeah, that's, a, that's an important point. Uh, Nick, um, I mean, we didn't uh, talk about it, but you know, when Professor Maguire mentioned that uh, at the end of, of the day, I mean, the uh, percentage received by agents was four uh, percent plus, and it includes the fees for agents who are uh, working on behalf of clubs. So, meaning that it's not necessarily related to working contract. So. Uh, meaning we, we always forget, but agents are creating a lot of value. But agents are creating a lot of value for clubs by transferring players and also by extending contracts to protect the club. You know, Maeta mentioned this earlier on when he was working at Mallorca. So he was happy to extend the player's contract because he was protected. So uh, and we should we should never forget that agents are creating value for clubs. Mm. And Fari, I think you wanted to come in. Oh, sorry, Raffaella first. Go ahead, Raffaella. No, for me, the, the real problem is the, 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 the double representation. If the, if the, the, the FIFA permits the, the double representation, the situation is, uh, is different for the fee. 
because now you can uh, hear not only for uh, in the for the double representation uh, if you represent uh, the player and uh, the club that buy the club the, the player but if you can represent the, the player and uh, the the club uh, to sell the player or uh, uh, the, the, the both the the club is different the fee yes yes Fari. so looking at the impact on the player specifically so Agents, regardless of your size of business, assuming these rigs come in at 3%, that's a significant impact on your revenue. So looking at our own business, well, we have obviously a number of employees, a number of consultants, a number of costs, etc. And the revenue that we would receive under the new regime would be significantly different and significantly reduced under the new regime. For any business, regardless of your size, it's impossible to maintain a cost base in the same level. And on our cost base is centered around servicing players. It's centered around having the best people in the industry, no matter what it is that they're doing from all walks of, all, all corners of, of this industry, from, from performance level, to nutritionists, to athlete marketeers, to lawyers, whatever it may be, that has a significant impact for us. So it would be impossible, inconceivable for us to maintain the business at the current level we're at for our clients, which means ultimately it's the clients and the players that would res result in a, in a decrease of the service, which I think is totally unfair. And if anything, we should be increasing the level of service to players, but it's not gonna be possible anymore if that's what happens. We always like to have a debate, though, and, and hear the other arguments. And I think one argument FIFA has raised, I should put uh, to some of you, is, well, look, why don't you try and find other ways to make money as agents to make up for this cap that you are unhappy about? For example, uh, why don't you offer more specialist tax and legal services to players and you can separately charge for uh, those type of services? Um Jan, I think you wanted to say something on that. First of all, because I didn't go into this business, I came into this business to mediate football players, and that's what I'm doing. So that's step one. So we're getting pushed by FIFA now in, in, in their fight for us to get uh, lesser fees to go and do, do something else. But the funny thing is that in some of the court cases, they even went out and say, listen, yeah, why don't you go and give legal advice? I was a trained lawyer, so I can give legal advice. But I think a lot of in this room cannot, and especially in a tax advice, so you need separate uh, accreditations to do these things. So it's very strange for them to say to go and offer it because in principle, if we're going to offer it, you're not licensed to do that. You have to go and get people outside and pay them extra to get these things done. So I think it's a little bit a way of of uh, yeah, pushing the, the whole discussion forward. And another dangerous thing, I think, and that's especially if you look at the, 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 the Dutch side, in England is more uh, uh, common, is image rights perspective and stuff. And, and in court cases as well, and I think they wrote it even in their, in their explanation, is yeah, go do more with image rights. But the problem with image rights is you need to have image. And of course, if we speak about the Premier League, all the players there have an image. If you go in the second division Holland and you're going to pay players something on image rights, the first thing the tax authorities will say, what image you have anyway? So there's nothing. So they're pushing also narratives in again, which makes it very dangerous for us as advisors, but for players on the long run even worse, to go into situations where they don't want to be in. So it's all great that they find these extra solutions. I think also personally that FIFA should be stuck by arranging something that has to do with football and not the other services, because this is what we're doing. But that's my personal opinion. Yeah. Raffaella, you've 
your perspective on that? No, um, uh, I repeat, my, I think the, uh, this, this time is, uh, is uh, we, we pass from uh, in, in one situation to another situation. I think the, the, the abusive uh, situation of uh, position of the FIFA is clear. Is clear, and uh, on this situation, only in, 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 is, it, it's need to, to 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 have the same regulation in uh, in in the world in all the federation. It's impossible that only in Spain, in Germany, and maybe in the FA, it's uh, um, is is stopped the the regulation. Only for parts of, uh, of regulation, because there are other parts that are a good, uh, good part of regulation. Bruno, I know you have to leave in a minute. So just before you do, what, what about, I mean, are there other innovations? We're, we're, the world is moving very fast. We've got AI and the metaverse. Everything is happening. Do, do football agents need to sort of turn over a new page and stop earning money in the old way of percentages of employment contracts? And look at new ways to earn money. Yeah, but I mean, you you gotta be creative. But uh, we're not gonna invent uh, something who is not existing. And uh, as we said, one of the objective of FIFA was more transparency. So uh, if you want us to invoice uh, fake services or hide it things, you know, it's not gonna work, and it's gonna be discovered. And the blame will be put on us again. So uh, that's exactly what we want to avoid. Uh, so we want to work clearly uh, in full transparency. And uh, and so I've been working many years for IMG, for example, in different sports. So I know how they work, how they, what they invoice in tennis, in golf. You know, it's based on percentage on, on their guarantees, on the prize money and on commercial contracts. And it's usually what kind of percentage level in those? Sports? I mean, commercial, it's more 20 or 25 percent. Yeah. So much higher. And for example, in the modeling industry, uh, for example, the models, they're paying 20 percent to their agent and the brand uh, who they are contracting with 20 percent as well. So you come up with 30, 40 percent, you know, so it's uh, and we are talking about 3 percent. So it's totally, totally different. And Fari, your, your agency also um, has uh, uh, lots of other sports involved in it. I'm, I'm not sure, maybe entertainment industry as well in, in the US. Um, are there things that you can learn from those other sectors to help in the future in football or, or are the differences too distinct? No, I, think, I think there's always things you can learn from looking at other sports and other industries. I mean, uh, to jump on what you said there, Bruno, other sports, you know, let's look at some of the other sports. In, in boxing, 25% is the norm for a manager. This is, we're asking for 3%. There's a, there's a huge gulf in that. When you look at entertainment in the film industry, 20% is the, is the norm. Is our 3%, is, 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 is that somehow kind of uh, a level playing field? Of course it's not. It's not right. We believe in market forces to determine whatever that might be. Why should we be unfairly penalised? I don't think that's right. But to answer your question, Nick, in terms of other industries, of course, you know, other, th other, other industries, other sports do things in a slightly different way. Um, ultimately, football is about elite athletes working at the highest level. There are obviously other sports that contain elite athletes and they might do things in a slightly different way. And there are learnings to take from all of those things. But I don't believe that we should have this kind of tin pot in our hand and you know ask for extra money for these different services. 
We believe in providing the best service. And, and, and at the moment, we don't charge for that service in addition to what we charge within the football work that we do. And we, we like that business model. Clients are used to that business model. If I tomorrow say to my client, you have to pay X for X, Y, and Z services, the question that's going to come back to me is, why am I doing that? I wasn't paying that before. Why do I have to pay that now? And that's a conversation that you're going to have to have over and over again with every client you're But you're also going to have to say, you're going to have to pay me direct from your net salary. And you're also going to have to pay on top of that for all those extra services. Yep. So they're not going to want to pay uh, the initial amount every quarter to you directly. So asking then again to go, oh, can you pay for this that you've always had included and not seen coming out of your payslip? It's completely impossible. I totally agree, Kelly. And, and they're going to think automatically, I am significantly worse off now than, than when I was under the previous regime. So um, what I'd like to do is see what questions you have uh, from the floor, because there's, I'm sure so many of you uh, are concerned about so much going on, so much uncertainty. Um, what do you want to ask? Brief questions, if possible. Put your hand up. Who's going to be first? Over there. Thank you. If you could just state your name and a brief question, which I'll then repeat so it can be picked up. Go ahead. So the, the question is, FIFA and UEFA have had controversial regulation of things like third-party ownership and financial fair play before. If FIFA are seriously challenged now in relation to this, is there a danger they just won't be able to regulate football at all in the future? Fari, yeah. I don't think there is a risk of that because I think as long as you have good regulation, regulation that's actually been thoroughly tested, and, and I agree with the previous panel before me, you know, Actually, let's really dive into the detail of this regulation. Have you got people, I think the factory floor was used uh, in, in, in a previous panel. I agree with that. You need people who work within the industry, who see the good, the bad, the ugly of the industry, really get to grips with exactly what works and what doesn't work. Then you can really help formulate a really good set of regulations. And I agree with some a comment, I think from Leon earlier on. We agree with 90% of those regulations, but that 10% is really challenging. And that 10% can result in the whole thing falling down. So to answer your question, look, I don't think it's something that would mean, fingers crossed we win. Uh, does that mean FIFA can never regulate again? No, I think they can, as long as they look at their own practices better and they really look at what consultation actually means and have a meaningful consultation. Don't pay lip service to people and say, oh, we've done consultation. That's complete nonsense. If you really want to consult with people, you put together a proper framework that works, that makes us as, as agents felt like part of the process. If we don't feel like we're part of the process and, and that, that really is, is just set up to kind of fool people into thinking they've consulted, it would never be successful. And just on that point, because some of the discussion also in today's conference this morning was about consultation and, and whether or not there'd been proper participation. And I always think the clue is in the words of the FIFA Football Stakeholders Committee who makes these rules. It is made up of, according to FIFA, the stakeholders who have a stake in these rules, which involves the leagues, 
It involves clubs, of course, and it involves the players and their unions. But the one person missing out of those stakeholders is agents. There is no representation at all on the formal FIFA stakeholders uh, committee, which is responsible for drafting the rules and then consulting and so on. No, nothing at all from agents. And to me, that, that must be a fundamental legal flaw when you're trying to defend these things in terms of consultation. You, could, you can have all sorts of, as you said, lip service type consultation. But when you're not actually at the table itself, even though you are the industry being regulated, it simply doesn't make sense. Raphael. The, the, the decision and without the consultation is the heart of the sentences of the Spain and Germany. Because this is the, 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 the abusive position of the, of the FIFA. Question from Stephen there. Hi, Stephen Heath, James Audi Solicitors. Um, isn't one of the problems here that if you look at the regulations, they're treating almost every agent as, as a self-employed sole trader. And isn't this a lost opportunity in the regulations to address the reality that large-scale agencies operate in different ways and your organization has much larger overheads, which I think is part of the problem because you have to pay for those overheads out of your fee. So, so the question is, um, the regulations appear to be aimed at sole traders, agents acting as individual self-employed sole traders, whereas so many now are parts of larger companies and how that affects overheads and so on. Kelly? I think there's been a common theme throughout, and Fari just mentioned it a minute ago, in terms of the services, the extra services that we obviously provide as larger agencies, which maybe one-man bands aren't able to achieve. Um, and there's there's been very little consideration, I think, and, and that's the danger of the regulations being drafted, and I am a lawyer, but by the lawyers that aren't on the coalface or the factory floor. So you, you've, you've got people that are set up there trying to set regulations for what's going on down here without any actual knowledge of what is going on and what will work and won't work without actually asking the people down here what will and won't work. Um, and I think that's a really um, good indication of where that's taken place here. Thank you. Anyway, yes, there's a question, two questions. A gentleman here. Uh, good afternoon, my name is Nicholas Curtis. I'm a student here at UCFB. Uh, I study international football business here. I'm a second year student. Uh, do you think the countries and federations and agents working in North and South American countries will follow the, in the footsteps of European countries like Germany and Spain um, with their you know, cases against the new regulations? So I think is there likely to be successful legal challenges to the regulations in the South American market? And if so, how will that affect the international market? Jan? The tendency, of course, of the South American countries in general to go against FIFA is well, almost zero because of obvious reasons in the past and stuff, I think. So based on my question, do you think that they're going to be uh, united and go against it? Unfortunately, I don't think so. Um, having said that, I, I go in South America now for the last, I think, 25 years. And of course, it took me a long time also to find the right business partners in the sense like there's been a lot of um, uh, development there as well. So in the past, we spoke about th uh, third party ownership and stuff. That's all gone. And the level of agencies in South America goes up as well. So I'm very happy in that sense with the partners I have. The fear only, or fear is maybe not the right word, but the reluctance for them to go against their own national associations 
or even to FIFA, I don't think uh, that will happen. Will it have an influence on the business there in general? Um, again, maybe I didn't emphasize it enough before, but one of the reasons I'm involved in all of this is I think, first of all, the most important part still is the players. Of course, you want to earn money, but what we do from South American countries, the younger players, especially in the bigger countries, is that we, I think we leave them behind if this is going to be accepted on the long run, because people like I am not the only one, they're more like that, we're doing that, have found the right partnership in the right place to get it done. The, the honest truth will be that I think they might be left out for the future. The younger talents to come in Europe at a good age and not at 16 or 15 or whatever, all that thing, but around 17, 18, 19, uh, they have a chance to make the real careers here and do that. If this is going to continue and FIFA will at the end of the day be successful, that we, the companies like I, and you don't have to feel sorry for me because I'm a small event company, but I do uh, good business so far. Uh, if the regulations go ahead, I will probably lose now 40 or 50% of my income. That's what we discussed and accounted for in the Dutch situation. That's all uh, something we need to accept maybe at the end of the day, but it will mean that I think in these smaller countries, it will be harder for players to be known in Europe and eventually going to Europe means further education, means development, means on the longer also the higher level there. So it will influence the whole South American situation, in my opinion. And we had a question there. Hi, Dylan Dewey, owner of the Victus Agency in Barcelona, also served on the Board Association of Football Agents in the UK. I understand that you guys are huge agencies, an independent agency, and you're more considered than concerned with anything else than the commission, which we all are even independent agents. But have you thought about making the argument, has it been made, that it would be anti-competitive if the players Therefore, because, okay, if I'm an independent agent, I'm going against someone like Fari, okay? I got no chance, but let's just say, okay? I could say, theoretically, I give 5% instead of 10%, and that would be a competitive advantage, right? So is that, some, is that a case that you've made? The question is whether one of the arguments made, either in the English cases or other cases, one of the arguments that it can be made is that this is, in fact, difficult in terms of competition for smaller agents has that has that argument been articulated at all yes thank you thank you obviously look, i can't talk about what arguments were made uh, in our english case um but we obviously have multiple european yeah. cases and uh, probably best i hand over but of course in the, one of the dutch cases that was one of the arguments we used because it means as a smaller business i can only fight him and maybe get to the 10 percent in the future if i get the clients in now at five percent but if i have to go to three percent then there's no need for me to get, up, well, to, to get up in the morning because I can't pay for my cost. So, of course, we use that argument to the bigger ones to make sure that we have some kind of competition. That's what this is all about, in my opinion. I'm going to wind it up now. Please give a big round of applause to our excellent panel. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Sports Law Podcast with me, Nick DiMarco of Blackstone Chambers. For more information, you can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn. And of course, visit our website at www.blackstonechambers.com.